All right, we're going to continue in the, uh, our parenting and family worship series. We are almost done with J.C. Ryle's Duties of Parents. Uh, I thought we'd be through it by now, but I mean, it's, it's really rich and it's really good. So I'm going to say, like I did every time, you should probably read the book because it's better than what I'm giving you here. Um, I'm just kind of giving you an overview of what he says and then sprinkling in uh, my own things, my own ideas, and, and maybe some more modern applications. Uh, but we have bought them in bulk. I think they're almost all out of the front foyer. So if you want a copy and don't have one, you can either find it for free online, you can listen to it for free online, or we can order another set of them so that we have them on hand, which I'm glad they got, they've gotten taken because it's, a, it's an easy read and it's a good read. And um, I highly recommend it. So we are on number 10. And I think we only have, I think, this lesson and one more. And I should, I think I sh- well, we should finish it in the next time that I I go through this, um, and Michael and Ken are continuing in their own uh, uh, sources as well. So he says in number 10, he's just giving, uh, if you remember, lists and uh, explanations of train them this way, train them this way, train them in these things. And on number 10, he says, train them in the habit of always speaking the truth. And again, like I said, a lot of these seem very basic, very straightforward, but um, his skill and wisdom as he talks about them are so good that even though they are basic, uh, you feel like you're learning something you haven't learned before. It's, it's kind of funny. But he says, encourage them in any circumstances to be straightforward and whatever it may cost them to speak the truth. Whatever it may cost them to speak the truth. I would make possible exceptions here when it comes to the government of, you know, don't divulge everything to them. I'm only partly kidding on that, but we've talked about political theology and all that uh, already. So I won't re-engage on that section. But this section is pretty short. It's mostly obvious, I think. But establishing trust is something that children need to recognize as to their own benefit. Kids need to realize that when they establish trust with an adult or whoever it is, with their parents or, or really onward into life, that it is to their benefit to have a person's trust. He brings up some good points about straightforwardness. It really got me thinking about how it can make it far more difficult when we as parents have to drag the truth out of a child. Um, so you should read how he, he puts it, um, how you have to drag the truth out of them or as they tend to deflect blame, you know, things like I didn't try to or it was an accident. I mean, if you've been a parent, you've heard those excuses. Uh, uh, you know, I wasn't trying to hit her, hurt her, I was trying to hit her, but I wasn't trying to hurt her when I hit her, that sort of thing. It's always like, I did the thing that produced that outcome, but I wasn't trying to produce that outcome when I did the thing. It's like, well, that's not an excuse. You did the thing to produce the outcome. Like, you can't just say, well, they're hurt. I wasn't trying to make them cry. I was just trying to make them feel pain. Don't you see the difference, mom and dad? So don't get on me for them crying. So they need to get that that partial truths and excuses are, it's like putting makeup on a lie. It's little more than just putting makeup on a lie. Giving a half-truth or making excuses isn't lying in and of itself, but it's akin to lying. It's pretty much lying. Um, These are likewise habits that must be nipped in the bud as soon as we see them emerging. As soon as you see that emerging. Because, I mean, you don't have to train your kid to do it. They're going to do it. Um, Most parents have probably noticed that switch in honesty that can happen in children. You know, when they're, they're really young... They have no problem, you know, saying the brutal truth. They don't even know any better. You know, they'll say, well, yeah, dad is fat. And they'll say things like that. I love mommy more than daddy. 
Like a kid will say that. They don't care if it hurts your feelings. They don't even think about it, right? But there's a switch that occurs when they start to face responsibility for their actions and the things that they say, and they, they get questioned on things like, well, what happened here? Or what did you do? And then there comes to this, this point where they are going to naturally start lying because they have a fallen nature. They're going to start twisting the truth. They're going to give partial truths. They're going to deflect blame. They're, going to, they're trying to avoid the consequences of their actions so that they can avoid the discipline of their parents or their authority, whatever it is. And that is when it is the most important to make them realize that their easiest path forward will always be complete and total truth. They will face discipline either way. I know kids always think they can trick or uh, deceive their parents, but I mean, we always know it's just we, we sort of ask to draw the truth out of them, not because we don't necessarily know, uh, but they compound their consequences by lying or hiding the truth, and the kids need to recognize that. That needs to be communicated to them in some kind of way that uh, they, if they want things easier, they should establish trust. So don't be trying to hide the truth. Don't avoid consequences. If they lean into the consequences of them doing a thing, even if they do something wrong, they can establish trust in doing the wrong thing. Not like that's a method to establish trust, but if, if someone is just straightforward about what they do, you're just like, well, I believe this person because they told me something that's very non-beneficial to them. Therefore, I believe what they say more often. But they got to learn about that. Uh, train them to be straightforward with the truth. Number 11, he says, train them to a habit of always redeeming the time. Always redeeming the time. Didn't we sing a song growing up called Redeeming the Time? Isn't that a Zion's Harp song? You wouldn't know, would you? There's a hymn called Redeeming the Time. Not necessarily a good hymn in terms of musically, but it sticks in my head apparently because I remember it. I just now thought of it. Um, I don't know how many of you have put, received pushback as a child if you ever complained to your parents that you're bored. Has anyone ever? Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing it's pretty much nearly everyone. Every kid has come up with that. Oh, I'm bored, mom. I'm bored, dad. And that complaint tends to disappear pretty quickly when every time you hear that, you respond to them by assigning them some work to do. Oh, that's great. Go mow the lawn. Go rake the leaves. Something like that. Then you don't hear I'm bored so often, right? But nevertheless, every child eventually whines about boredom. And every parent knows that, I mean, that is a concept that is foreign to our lives, I mean, after you, there comes an age where, like, you'll just never be bored again until you're basically an old and infirm. It's, it's foreign to our lives. I can't imagine ever being bored again. I have a hard time imagining a scenario that, in my head that I, I couldn't be doing something else, something beneficial, something even relaxing that I've been wanting to do. And I don't mean it just in terms of amusement, but something actually beneficial, a, a documentary I've been wanting to watch or a book I've been wanting to read or Time alone with a child or my wife, or there's just always something that could be being done. There's always a way to redeem the time. And not only that, but for anyone of any age, idleness is the devil's playground. And he draws attention to that pretty well. He says, there's a few things that he says here, but he says, we must have our hands filled and our minds occupied with something or else our imaginations will soon ferment and breed mischief. Our minds... And our imaginations will ferment and breed mischief. I like that kind of verbiage. Uh, I believe that idleness has led to more sin than almost any other habit that can, could be named. I suspect it is the mother of many a work of the flesh, the mother of adultery, fornication, drunkenness, and many other deeds of darkness 
that I have not time to name. So he's saying, teach them to redeem the time so that they aren't idle. And you can think of David and Bathsheba. Think of Sodom. These are places, David was idle at that time. He wasn't going out in the world like he should have. His army was gone. He's left back at the city. He's bored. He's being lazy. He's being idle. And his imaginations go to dark places. So, uh, work and productivity are not results of the fall. I know we've talked about this before. Work and productivity are harder because of the fall, uh, but they're not a result of the fall. There is going to be work to be done in eternity. There was work to be done in the garden before the fall, and there's going to be work to be done in glory. I'm very curious about it. I think it's going to be very, very enjoyable and fulfilling work, and I think we'll be almost shocked at the ease of it and the pleasantness of it. Um, It's not going to feel like how we think of work now, where it's drudgery or frustrating and that sort of thing. So work is not, we, we can't think of work as a bad thing. Remember, eternal life is physical, and eternity is not going to be spent just lounging around 24-7. There's no such thing as 24-7 because there's no night or day, but regardless, you know what I mean. Uh, it's not just leisure. We're not being saved to leisure and ex- exclusively to leisure. Free time is great. Don't get me wrong. Free time is great. Not because we get to do nothing, though. It, it's great because we get to do the, the next most needed thing. Whatever's most needed next, when you have free time, you're like, you can do it. There's nothing to keep you from doing the next most needed thing. We get to redeem that time without the stress of a deadline. That's how we should think of free time. You get to redeem it, but you don't have the stress of a deadline. That's kind of what adds the pressure to so-called free time. It's when, oh, you, or, 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 or other work, you just have to get it done by such and such, or you only have so much time. Free time, it, it frees you up for enjoyment. You can redeem it with uh, enjoyment. So for parents and children, we're essentially same in this regard, honestly. Uh, count it a blessing if you find yourself with free time, but use it to do something needed. That means parents, you need to model this with your free time. You're doing something needed or helpful, not just like, I'm going to lay on the couch for three hours because I've got three hours to spare. Admittedly, I mean, it can be a nap some days, right? Free time ought to be directed at a nap sometimes. I've told Andrea a few times, I've been like, I want you to go take a nap. For the benefit of later tonight, go take a nap, please. I know how little sleep you got. I know how much Amelia kept you awake, whatever it is. Uh, but it's not wasted time, even if it is a nap. Uh, rest is not always a waste, but uh, redeem the time. Number 12, he says, train them with a constant fear of overindulgence. And that I don't know if he gave these sections the titles that they did. I think he did. Uh, This one doesn't seem to line up exactly with what he's getting at. It's mostly about the need for parents to discipline and correct their kids. But I think he's thinking in the terms of like things they need to be rebuked about or corrected from are, he puts them in the category of overindulgence. And he wants them to, to know that overindulgence is uh, going to be treated with correction from their parent. I think that's what he's getting at with constant fear of overindulgence. Because it, this section is really mostly about discipline and correction. Uh, like the urging of a parent to do it. And we've talked a lot about it. And Ken has, in his, has, has talked about discipline a good bit. But here Ryle wants or warns, warns parents about excess affections for their child, blinding them to their faults. 
And so he, he you know, he's, he's talking about like it's natural to be affectionate and tender towards your child. That's good. But an excess affection can keep you from kind of seeing that they need correction at times. You know, like uh, there should never be that attitude of little Johnny can do no wrong. And sometimes we fall into that because, you know, our kids are the most amazing to us. Our kids are the cutest kids to us, always. But he acknowledges the unpleasantness of punishment and correction. And I've, I've said this to my kids. I can't tell you the number of times that I've assured my children that I don't want to spank them. Like, this is not enjoyable. Please don't, because I'm so sick of this. Or I don't want to do this. It's unpleasant for me. I know it's unpleasant for you, but it's unpleasant for me. Everybody hates this, but it's necessary. But we don't really enact discipline for enjoyment. Obviously, we do it for their own good. It, it's, it's not just a thing that we say that, that like, this is necessary even though it's unpleasant. Um, that's not just a thing that we're saying to our kid to like alleviate guilt for doing it. We shouldn't feel guilty for doing it. It's, but this is biblical. And there's multiple Proverbs about this. Proverbs 13, 24, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. If you withhold correction, you hate your son. He's saying that's a form of hatred towards your child if you withhold correction, but you love them by disciplining them diligently, meaning you're always on it. They need to have that constant, uh, he calls it fear, but that, that they, he, they know if I do this bad thing, I will face consequences from mom and dad. Proverbs 19.18, Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare him for his crying. That's KJV. I don't know how accurate it is because other versions talk about you're preventing him from death. And I don't know that that catches the sense as well, except that when you look at the totality of Proverbs, it, it's, it's warning about the undisciplined life leading to death. And it, 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 this, that Proverbs getting at like, chasten while there's still hope, before they're set in their ways, chasten while they're young, chasten while you have the chance, and don't spare their soul because they're despairing over the chastening. Or... Because what it leads to is death. There's a good warning there. Proverbs 22.15, you've heard this one. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. And Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14, do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. You're preventing him from death. Discipline is one of the means and the methods that God uses to teach our children, teach us, and to, that's how we ought to teach our children. In fact, that's the next section. We, we teach our children like God teaches us, but we'll get to that. Um, so we can't let that unpleasantness of doing the discipline cause us to fall into spoiling them by letting them get away with whatever they want. And there, I mean, there are parents that get exhausted, exasperated. I mean, it, it, it's a What's the word? Not not a meme, but a a, a, a trope. A um, what's the word I'm thinking of? I'm, my brain's not functioning well tonight. Um, a, a thing that everybody thinks is true. What is that? Yeah, it's something like that. I heard truism. What was the other one? That doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying? Uh, that idea that like the the last kid usually gets the least amount of discipline and the first kid gets the most amount of discipline. And why is that? Because parents get exasperated, they're so tired, and they're just like, ah, let them do it. They give up, right? They get more and more lenient as they have more and more kids because of this unpleasantness that comes with discipline. And it's like eventually they get worn out. We can't let that happen. 
we've got to be consistent across the board. Now, there is some learning that comes from the first kid to the last kid. Don't get me wrong there. But sometimes we learn that we were too harsh, so that can happen. But don't let the unpleasantness of it and the, the weariness that comes from continually having to do it, don't lighten up too much on those later kids because of its unpleasantness. It's kind of the idea. Uh, the most frequent way of spoiling a child is letting them have their own way when they shouldn't. There's nothing wrong with a child wanting their own way if it's the right way or the wise way, uh, but letting them have their own way when they shouldn't have their own way or when it's foolish or it's simply excessive, right? Proverbs 29, 15 and 17, he says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. And 17, correct your son and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. It's amazing, really, if you count them all up. The, the amount of timeless, practical parenting counsel is found in Proverbs. There's a ton. Um, that's probably the most quoted uh, book of the Bible for all this parenting se- series, if you put it together. It's probably Proverbs. I know I've quoted it more than anything. But we don't let them pick out their own outfits, right? They don't know how to do that yet. You have to train them into it. We don't let them decide their own meals. Um, when we let them have a cookie or a treat or some kind of candy or something, do we ever let them decide how much of it that they get to have? No. Would they ever be like, not one's enough? It never happens. <laughs> Kids don't do that. They overindulge. We know why you can't trust them. They overindulge. They can't help it. That they're, they're little people that need discipline so that they got to be trained in that. They don't judge well because judging well is a learned skill that they learn from their parents primarily. It's got to be taught to them through example and through discipline. We can look at the undisciplined lives of Hophni and Phineas, uh, Eli's sons. He said, 1 Samuel 3 says, His sons brought a curse upon themselves, and, did, and he did not rebuke them. They were doing things that made them ceremonially unclean. They did it while serving at the temple. Uh, he knew, and it tells us in 1 Samuel 2, they lay with the women who serve at the doorway of the tent of meeting. They're serving at the temple. And then there'd be women serving there at the door, and they were sleeping with those women. And Samuel knew, or Eli knew this. They also were taking meat for themselves that was supposed to be offered to God. And they'd be like, "Uh, this is actually the best part. I'm going to take this. And people would be like, no, that one's for the sacrifice. They'll be like, don't worry about it. And you read that story too. 1 Samuel 2.29, God is talking to Eli about this. He says, why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? He's rebuking Eli for his failure to stop his sons from doing that, his lack of discipline of his own kids. And notice how he took this. He says, Eli, you are honoring your sons above me by letting them get away with this thing. That's what we do when we tolerate sin. Children, be obedient to your parents, for this is pleasing to the Lord. When they disobey their parents, they're disobeying God. So when you let them disobey you, you're letting them dishonor God, and you're honoring them above God. It's basically making an idol of your children or an idol of the own, your own desire not to have to discipline, right? So Eli did comment to his sons to stop these things. He, he made things like, why are you, he said, like, why are you doing this? And it's called a rebuke, but he doesn't make them stop. There's a difference between telling somebody to stop, telling your children to stop, and making them stop. And I know mothers have a harder time with this. Um, 
because they can't always make a child stop as easily, especially when the older they get. But fathers do have a unique ability to make their kids stop doing something. I mean, that you have this innate ability as a man that is different than a mother, and that's intentional. That doesn't mean you always have to be the bad guy, but you can make it stop. And sometimes, I don't want to rebuke any mothers here necessarily, but you know how moms can sometimes get so tired of repeating themselves or disciplining in such a way, and then if you see it, you're just like, you know, I see that you're trying, you're saying it, but you're not making it happen. And that's a, that's a different thing. And partially, if we hear that or see it, we should step in as fathers because we have this ability. Like, yes, a mother should do that, but dads can come in and make it happen immediately. David, likewise, had a noticeable lack of discipline with several of his sons. And it resulted in, if you look at the family's life, it resulted in excessive suffering and even death. Amnon committed incest. Uh, Absalom murdered his brother. Amnon rebelled against his father. Adonijah rebelled, and he was scheming to be king himself. That's three very serious, very serious uh, moments of turmoil in his life. First Kings 1 Kings 1.6 says, His father had never crossed him at any time by asking, Why have you done so? And that one is about Adonijah, uh, but that's probably indicative of how David parented. He never, he never went to them and was like, what are you doing? I'm going to put an end to this. And what do they do? Their rebellion and their sin escalates because he doesn't stop in and stop it. David brought a lot of hardship on his household because of this. A lot, like his kingdom or his, his kingship should have been much easier than it was. He heard about Amnon's rape of Tamar. And it tells us, the text tells us he got very angry. But do we see him do anything? We don't. And because of that, Amnon does more and more. Then he tries to set himself up as king. Absalom, uh, sorry, Absalom usurped him, usurped his father, killed Amnon, and then Absalom tried to make himself king. And David just kind of sits by, he's like, oh, that's a mess. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? So Ryan Ryle warns about overindulgence of children. We need to serve their actual interests, not merely their desires. Hopefully those align. As they gain wisdom, they'll converge a little more, but we need to serve their interests, not their desires. We can't turn our kids into idols, and you can't turn the desire to not have to discipline into an idol. So Ryle says this. He says, learn to say no to your children. Show them that you are able to refuse whatever you think is not fit for them, Show them that you are ready to punish disobedience and that when you speak of punishment, you are not only ready to threaten, but also to perform. Do not threaten too much. Threatened folks and threatened faults live long. Punish seldom, but really and in good earnest. Frequent and slight punishment is a wretched system indeed. So what he's getting at is like, don't just give them a bunch of empty threats. I'm going to count to three, mister, and then say that over and over again. You know how that... Those pitfalls we fall into is like, give them another warning, give them another warning, give them another warning. And before you know it, they're not threatened by your warnings at all. Frequent and slight punishment is a wretched system indeed. So threaten, warn them, but you've got to perform it. They've got to know he's not just saying that. He's going to do that. You know what? I remember this one time. Who Has anyone's dad ever said, I will turn this car around? 
we were on like a two or three hour trip to like my favorite trip of the year. And he said it over and over. My dad said it. And we were like 10 or 15 minutes away and he did it. And we begged and cried all the way home. And I was shocked because he did not turn around and go back to the place. He went home. And <laughs> I remembered that pretty much forever. So be like that a little bit. Don't, let, don't issue idle threats. He says there's danger in letting, or he doesn't say this, but there is danger in letting very little ones, toddlers, not necessarily infants, get away with too much because it's cute or funny. There's danger there, too. He, he talks about little ones. Uh, I know I've made this mistake. Everybody thinks their kids are so funny and so cute, and they are to us, right? And usually to other people, too, but mostly to us, or at least more so to us. And there's a lot of things that, like, it's funny when a kid is learning to say no, and, and then you're like, wait a minute, they're actually being really defiant here. It's, it's funny in a sense, but then you're like, but they're also being trained in a habit of defiance. Be careful of that. He said, beware of letting small faults pass unnoticed under the idea of it is a little one. There's no, there are no little things in training children. All are important. Little weeds need plucking up as much as any. Leave them alone and they will soon be great. That's a good warning. Um, start early. That, I mean, discipline appropriately when they are littler and they have a harder time understanding and it must be gentler of course, but don't let it go just because it's adorable. He closes with this admonition. I'll give you one more quote. He said, reader, if there is any point which deserves your attention, believe me, it is this one. It is one that will give you trouble, I know. But if you do not take trouble with your children when they are young, they will give you children, trouble when you are old. Choose which you prefer. So either be troubled with them now or be troubled with them when they're older. And the point is the trouble that they bring you when they're young is exceptionally minor compared to the trouble they can bring you when they're older. And it will destroy their lives and bring much devastation on the family. So he's just saying, pick which one you want. Also, uh, I had these additional thoughts. Thinking of parents, parenting spoiling their kids or allowing them to overindulge. Um, I couldn't think, I couldn't help but think in our modern day of too much screen time, video games, too much video games, uh, too much sports, Screen time and video games can easily eat every second of a child's day if we let them decide. If we just put it in our hand, keep yourself occupied, don't bother me, you can have a lot of peace and quiet in your house. It'll be like you're not, your child's not even there. You haven't seen them in hours. You can get them in a room quiet if you give them endless screen time, and it will destroy them. It will become an enduring habit, too. But I will also say sports is one that parents often allow because they think it's good for the child. And it, it is. In moderation, it can be. Now, I'm not saying don't do youth sports or anything like that. Our own kids are in youth sports. But it's got to be done in moderation. The youth sports industrial complex, if I could call it that, can devour as much, if not more, of family life than nearly anything else. It really can, if you're not careful. It causes neglect of the Lord's Day big time. Big time. Neglect of family dinners, it consumes free nights and weekends. Do not overindulge in sports. So a lot of parents, I think, are wise when they say, pick one, pick your favorite, do it. Like maybe you try a few different ones when you're younger, you kind of learn which one you like the best. But, I mean, the way they do it now, like we, I was just talking with, I don't know who it was this week, uh, but we were talking a little bit about this. 
The fact of the so many sports teams and, and tournaments and yada, yada, yada happen on Sundays now, on the Lord's Day, why does that happen? Because parents were willing to do it. Would they ever be able to run those tournaments if parents were like, no, we don't do that on the Lord's Day. Are you crazy? No, it's the Lord's Day. No, of course we're not going to be there. And no, we're not going to travel six hours away on a Saturday and then drive back and try and like, we'll be exhausted the next day at church. No, it only happens because parents let it happen. And again, I'm not, I don't want to just rail against youth sports because I think it is, there's a lot of benefit to it. Discipline and fitness and uh, working with people. There's a lot of stuff you can enjoy and developing uh, physical skills and all that. That's great. But let's be realistic too. The percentage of people that like actually do it to the benefit of their career or even get a college degree from it are exceptionally rare. The fact that we have one at all in this church is amazing. Uh, it's, it's, let's not be ridiculous about it. Let's, let's be reasonable and realistic. You know, if they have some natural talent, that's great. Feed it. But also set an example. If your kid is so good that you're, you're like, we're not playing on Sundays and the team's like, no, you've got to. No. You can have him every day but Sunday. Or not even that. That's probably too much anyway. But, you know, the point is we're willing to work with you any day but Sunday. That's kind of what I meant by that. All right, anyway. Uh, 13, we'll, we'll close on this one. Train them remembering continually how God trains his children. Just kind of, I alluded to this a little bit ago. And here he's drawing from the fact that God is making for himself a family from elect individuals throughout all times and places, right? He's collecting his elect. He's converting them, bringing them into the church. He's creating a family for himself. And, and Ryle says it this way, and I like the way that he worded this. God the Father is ever training the members of his family for their everlasting abode with him in heaven. He's training them to be in his presence. Now, if you think about, I, I'm going to deviate a little bit. Um, you think about the temple in Israel. What was that training the people about? It was like, th- th- that temple represented the presence of God. And what did they learn from all those laws and the, oh, the cleanliness and all of that was like, wow, we have got to be really clean, really holy to dwell in God's presence. If we're going to be with him in presence, we have to be atoned for All our sin has to be atoned for before we even think of going into his presence. He's training us to be in his presence as his family members. And he knows us, is what Ryle is getting at with this too. He knows us. He knows our sins and our struggles, our weaknesses, our infirmities, our trials and temptations. He prunes us as a husbandman does the vine so that we bear more fruit. He prunes us to bear more fruit. Not just because he doesn't want you to get too proud or you're, you're producing too much or being too fruitful. No, the pruning is for our benefit, to produce more fruit. Notice that God does not make our way as easy as possible. This is how God trains his children. He doesn't make our lives as easy as possible. He doesn't give us everything that we want, but he, he does provide for our every need, but he's not giving us every desire. There are things that we want to attain. There's things that we would like to do. There's maybe positions that we would aspire to. Yet the Lord withholds much of it. Much of it. And we know that he does this for our own good. How many men could maintain their current character that they now exhibit if they had the money and the power or the good looks that they would choose for themselves? I remember was that Tiger Woods when a lot of news broke about the lifestyle that he lived and people were just like, oh, he's such a dirtbag. And he is. He is a dirtbag. 
And it got revealed that he was a dirtbag. And a lot of that comes out with celebrities or people with power. You find out they're dirtbags. That's true, they are. I'm not, I'm not apologizing for them in any way. But how many of us, like, we've never faced the temptations that they would face. How many people could maintain the character in the face of the same temptations? Sports athletes. Um, the stuff that they face would be incredibly difficult. And it's easy to look at it and be like, that's terrible, and it is. But it's easy to think, like, I would never do that in that position. Well, how much is God protecting you from falling into those sins by not letting you attain to those positions? And that can go with any of the stuff that we want, any of the desires in our life, the comforts, the, the, the money, the power, any of it. He could be protecting you from what you would do were you to attain the things that you wanted. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. He's saying, think about how God does that with you, and then remember that when you train your children. Don't give them everything that they want, because they maybe can't control themselves if they had everything that they wanted, which obviously they couldn't. We know it's for our own good. See how God uses darkness and bitter providence to lead us in the way that he is taking us. And, if, and you think here of the Israelites. They're in the desert for 40 years, wandering around before they enter the promised land. You think of Joseph. He's a slave. He's a prisoner in Egypt for years before he's made the vice-regent of Egypt. David was chased around by Saul and hiding in caves and writing psalms while Saul's trying to kill him before he ever gained the throne. So much discouragement and hardship precedes whatever good God is bringing about. I know personally, I've thought about this a few times. I couldn't imagine reliving the first five years of our marriage. It would be terrible. It was awful. I was really bad at it. I couldn't imagine going through that again. And if I knew what was coming, if I could go back and if I communicated to myself what I was about to bring upon myself, the hardship I was about to endure, again, not because of myself, but I don't know that I would have the courage to go through with it. I genuinely don't know. And I could be like, no, it's for your betterment. The Lord will use it. And I'd be like, yeah, that still sounds pretty terrible. I think I'll just pass on that. Thanks. I don't know that I would have the courage to do it. But having been through it now, I'm incredibly thankful for what God has done, what he's brought us through, and the gratitude that I now have for my wife. So much higher than I ever could have imagined. It makes me so thankful all the time. It makes me 100% convinced of the effective use of grace to change people and situations. Um, I mean, obviously, there's people that were worse than us, but grace is incredibly powerful. I'm convinced of it because I've seen it in my own life, and I would not have chosen to learn that lesson the way that I learned it. But sometimes we've got to learn those lessons that way. God uses those lessons. There's times then God says, no, I'm not going to give you an explanation, but you must follow me. We're about to go through a tunnel, so hold on. You're not going to see the light for a while. Hold on. Just follow me. And the point is that with our children, that will likewise occur. There's going to be things similar to that. We cannot, nor should we want, to protect our kids from every difficulty in life. I mean, how many times have you seen your kid get hurt or get sick and just like, I wish I had this ability to touch them and the pain would transfer to me. And then I thought, how much of a wussy would they be if I did that every time they were in pain? 
they would grow a being as incredibly fragile. Chastening happens through bitter providence. Disappointments and burdens are foundational to the kind of adult that we become. Anyone that has an incredibly easy life grows up to be an incredibly fragile person. No one matures in their spiritual walk just by sunshine and lollipops every day. It's just not the reality. We must be pressed and challenged and rebuked and rejected and, and tried and sapped of all our personal strength so that we know that we're holding on to Christ and only Christ. Thorns in our flesh are not always removed. Paul prayed three times for his thorn to be removed. And what message did he get? My grace is sufficient for you. Grace is sufficient for the difficulties of this life. Faith grows when it is used. And it's not just a backup plan like, oh, I can use faith if I need to. It's not just in the closet to take out on that rainy day. It's, it's to be used because it will be hard. It's for every day of life. We cannot be undone by our personal trials and we cannot be undone by seeing our children go through trials. Children have to endure trials too. They're chastened the same way. We can't, we can't prevent trials for them without realizing that you're preventing something that they are going to learn from. Don't just always be thinking, no, that's going to be too hard for them. That's going to bring a lot of disappointment. If you buy them a pet, that pet's going to die. They're going to have to learn to deal with death. It's that sort of idea. Medicine doesn't always taste good. But our soul's health is nursed to health at times by pain. It really is. He says it this way, he kind of sums it up. And be not afraid, above all, that such a plan of training will make your child unhappy. I warn you against this delusion. He's talking about preventing in the trials. Depend on it. There is no surer road to unhappiness than always having your own way. To have our wills checked and denied is a blessing a blessed thing for us. It makes us value enjoyments when they come. To be indulged perpetually is the way to be made selfish. And selfish people and spoiled children, believe me, are seldom happy. Reader, be not wiser than God. Train your children as he trains his. I think there's a lot of wisdom there. God provides, but he does not coddle. He's present, he comforts, but he's not there to pamper us. So there's wisdom in seeing that, that God allows trials for his children and we should do the same for our own. Um, any questions or comments before? Any additions to that before we close? I have a question. Yep. Um, the first thing I'm on him from Hophni and Phineas. And Ian Davis kids like Yeah. Well, that's what I was thinking too, because when I was writing those down, I was like, well, these are older men, but it's got to be indicative of how they parented when they were young for them to get away with that sort of thing in the face of their own fathers of, of, in powerful positions even. And that might have been part of why, you know, they, they might have been spoiled because they're, there's, I'm looking for that same word again, uh, another truism, uh, you know, of preacher's kids, right? I'm terrified of that thought. Preacher's kids have this, almost like a favored position because it's like, oh, that's the preacher's kid. And a lot of them turn out to be brats. Luckily, Ken's done a good job and we know that's not the case for his. And hopefully me and Michael uh, do not make the mistake of, of doing that with our own kids. 
they're not special. They're not super Christians. And I think when there's somebody in a position of power like David or Eli, there's probably some of that at play there, right? Well, my dad's King David. I can rape my sister Tamar? That's insane. You know, the, like, the thought that they could get away with that in the face of their dad and just be like, he won't do anything. And he didn't. It's crazy. They, he had to have been failing in his parenting as a whole, either too distracted or something. So I think, I think the failure that they saw, we see in them as adults is indicative of their failure when they were young. Is that something that, you know, in about uh, six, six years old, if they're still and now the out, take hang up their own family. In those situations, the reason theme, it seemed like your life could you that all your life address them, like, hey, here's sin, this is an issue, right? Spending. I guess that translates. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I see this as a 35 year old adult, like, I'm not going to see what. Yeah, I like that you said that. Speak wisdom into it. Because there comes a transition when they start their own household that they're out from under your authority. Now, you, you have a natural authority, but not like a formal authority over your, your children's households when they start their own, right? Um, once they're married and I hand these daughters off to their husbands to be protected and to, to love their husbands, I don't have any authority over them anymore formally, but I can speak wisdom. And I like that you said that. Speak wisdom into their life as an older man, as a brother in Christ, as a, a member of a church together, ideally, if you go to the same church, um, you can speak wisdom into their life and admonish, and you, you'll have certain inroads that you'll be able to be more direct with them, and then there's certain barriers, too, that come from being family. Uh, prophets never appreciated in his own household or his own town, um, and there's a degree of that where sometimes they need to hear it from an outside source, but there's also, uh, we can be incredibly blunt with our, our family members, too, because we don't have to like maintain this, the, the formalities as much. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think we should ever give up on the, the, the speaking of wisdom to members of our household or, or our former members of our household, if it will be. Yep. Um, so mine is on the notes. So it's not at the beginning. I quickly, um, see me to establish the problem. I was sad this thing. Um, yeah. Not to be specific, but certainly against me. Um, but he found that first, like, first, I think our screens have been somehow they find it very vestigial. Yeah. You know, if I see something, and then I'll just, what are some ways if you have a pressure? Yeah. There's a couple things where, one, I, I ask them things that I know the answer to and, and give them the opportunity to tell the truth. And if they do, I often thank them for that and talk about how their, their punishment will not be as harsh because they told the truth. It would have been this, but I'm going to do this because you told the truth. And when they lie, I divvy up the punishment almost like this is for the thing that you did. This is because you lied about it. Maybe it's literally two spankings. Maybe it's this punishment or, and, the, and then and you're losing access to this or that. So I've tried to, to see... I've tried to make clear to them that the consequences are increased when you lie. And, um, and man, it's, it's really hard to enjoy a, a liar. Kids that are liars and dishonest are very difficult to enjoy. Um, so I, I, that's a really big deal, in my opinion, of, of kids being trained not to lie. Um, and that I also, 
uh, in our, when I've talked about this, the repentance and confession time in our, in our family worship, um, them seeing me be blunt and straightforward about my own faults helps train them to be blunt and straightforward about their own faults. Because when you do that and you're, you confess sin and repent of it, you find grace. And if they find grace from their parents when they are straightforward and, and confess their sins and repent of it, they will find grace. So issue grace immediately when they admit fault. They got to find grace when they admit fault. Uh, Richard? Uh, we did uh, early on, the you know, when our little ones, they have the imagination and they repeat things that are from their imagination, but then they transition to hyperbolic Zadiev language. And if you recorded that circumstance and you saw what happened, and I have to train them to do routine. Yeah, that's good. Oh, that always a little bit. Uh, people were talking about events or circumstances or even arguments or things like that. I work with people that are adults that I could be a you know, two-way conversation when they repeat that to somebody else and you know that. And to them it's not It's just how they were uh, Yeah. Everything's sensationalized and piped in. Yeah. Yeah. This is how we need really didn't that or trying to be. Yeah. I know I'm like your right girly pop wall as so I did. Yeah, I was a very jealous and the sat all of me so not you and I made it so early on, I was like, I want you to tell the truth to my god to you. Because I call that little dumb to have wished why you not Yeah. We made that same decision for the same reasons. Yeah. Yeah, the, and the, it's, it's hard because, the, like, when they're little and, they, you know, I caught a fish, it was so big. It's like, that's adorable, it's cute. And then you're like, eventually that turns into, like, they're, they're just straight up deceiving people. And they almost don't know it because of the training. Yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of wisdom there. Yeah. Everything's always the biggest, the best, the greatest. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot. Michael and then Garrett, I think I saw. And we, and maybe Lux, uh, the Charlie James on the point about overt indulgence, he says this is, is stuff. It says, a parent's denouncements should not be hastily uttered for children to laugh. And it's a thing about that. If you, you're, you're hastily uttering things that either you're directing to do and then you fall to it. I think if my child. Yeah. Be or me be weak. Yeah. In my discipline. If I am weak in my discipline, and if, if I am doing that spirit rod, I am Yeah. The another point of the, the last uh, aspect of uh, uh, training them up, training them up like God trains us on. Letting the face smile is not a task that God's bad. For it's a citizen aspects of his loving kindness, or of letting our children fail is an aspect of other kindness for us. We do the opposite of constantly coddling them, you are doing the same thing as bearing the pot. Yeah. 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 Garrett, you ain't something? Yeah. So, 
Yes. I ain't getting there because it says no fraud standing. Solve it. No. Thoughts. However, I'd like to introduce you to your, your commentary on, on all in this sport. However, anywhere, uh, I was the vibes. It is. And I was banging with the very gross stories of all. You know, I about to hear your acting mate, so it's here. The dark affords it, fine if this. Elf, you mean you should do? Don't lose that little pair. Might have do this. Is it all just us and anyone's opinion? Yeah. Yeah. And so the question is about basically on spanking. Um, and we haven't talked about it much. Um, I think it is. So when it talks about the rod of discipline, I think that could be a, a, a total picture of discipline where it's just like it's, it's using a, a euphemism, but it, it's not less than spanking. It's spanking and everything below that. So I think I 100% believe in corporal punishment. And I've heard stats, modern-day stats, about kids that spank react this way and yada, 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 and all these negative stats. And it's not that I disbelieve those stats. I think those stats are indicative of parents that spank out of anger. They spank for bad reasons because they've gotten driven to the point of, you're driving me crazy, I'm going to take it out on you. And those kids react very poorly and mimic that same behavior. If a child is seized that spanking is an unpleasantness done out of love for their good, for their discipline, so they bear more fruit because it's like a pruning, it is 100% effective. And, I mean, you've seen the jokes of, like, you can tell the people that, disre that are disrespectful, that you can tell the people that have never been spanked and ones that are disrespectful and, and uh, uh, selfish and all these other things. I think it's 100% true. Um, Spanking is often done poorly, and even when we advocate for it, there's going to be times that we don't do it well, but it ought to be done, and we need to communicate when we do it that it's done out of love. And it's very hard because you are often angry, and it is often a righteous anger, uh, but it's very hard not to indulge that anger in terms of um, going too far and that sort of thing. So, yes, you should spank. Uh, I'd have no problem saying that. And, and then some people even say like, oh, well, don't use anything other than your hand. If you use a spoon or an object, then that like communicates something different. I, I, I don't buy that either. It talks about the rod of discipline. It's talking about using an instrument. Um, I, I'm not opinionated on what you use it, the, because it's, it's not even the level of pain so much as it is the, the, how much the, the act itself startles the child. Should it sting? Yes. Should it leave bruises? No. Like, no, we don't beat our kids, obviously, but spanking is not beating. It's a very, a slap of a hand is not beating. And I think anything up to and including that should, uh, should be done um, based on whatever the thing is. So I'm, I'm not like an expert in it, but I, that's my thought on it. Um, it's good. It's beneficial. It ought to be done. And when it's not, it's... It's not like it has to. It's just that you're cutting yourself off from such an effective tool. Um, because what we're dealing with here is, I mean, as, if you look at Proverbs, it's talking about life and death. You're saving your child from death, the death that an undisciplined life comes to, leads to. And spanking, I think, communicates the harshness of rebellion and disobedience. Harsh words have their place. Hard words have their place. But spanking does too. Um, but it's got to be done well. 
It's got to be done right. I mean, if you're doing it out of anger, and if your kid fears your anger more than your discipline, I'm going to draw a distinction between that. If they fear your anger more than your, your discipline, then I think you're probably doing it wrong. So do it out of love. Assure them of your love before you do it. Assure them of your love after you do it. And if you have to wait a little bit and calm down, or if a different parent has to do it that was uninvolved with you know, what got them to that point, then do that too. There's times when you know, I've got to step in because they've driven Andrea nuts and she's ready to spank them. And I'm like, I'll do the spanking because I'm not as exasperated as you are right now. So I'll, uh, I have a better chance of spanking appropriately and vice versa. Um, but yeah, do it. 100%. Yeah. You can say to her children, to each child, it's like different. We bash children that can cuss spanking and dies if that doesn't. Yeah. You're at as well. Um, South Bay does it take play when the Baptist and there's her island is an island of course they need to do versus state you know about today they like it and not yeah people talk about love languages but that, people have disciplined languages too there's things that work better for different kids Lee I think you, you had something I'm saying well, I guess to take it in that you know to your room and I'll meet there later maybe it goes to the place for an help I know that's the day I was scared of us, it did. But I guess Paul, I'm here to tell, like my first there safely. Just though that I feel, I like, sound. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've also, I've gauged spanking based on their reaction to getting caught, too. You were straightforward with this. You did wrong. You admitted it. You told me what happened. You're going to get one spanking. It's not going to be that hard. I didn't necessarily say it, but they, they pick up on it. So, yeah. See, anything else before we close? Oh, more sports? No lies to sound not to. Yeah. You can get away with not playing on Sunday. Yeah, exactly. Except in the NFL. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again come before you asking for wisdom and discipline and grace to be wise parents. We pray that as you parent us as our Father, as you rebuke us and you prevent us from getting every desire of our heart and everything that we would choose to get for ourselves, I pray that we can uh, mimic the wisdom of the parenting you exhibit to us, to our own kids and our own family, and that they would benefit and become more fruitful the same way that we benefit from your fatherly discipline and your pruning. Make us more fruitful as parents. Cause us to make our children more fruitful in their own lives and produce in them by the means of our discipline and our wisdom that we pass on, producing them faith and endurance and good character and godly qualities that can be used for your glory in your church and for the furthering of your kingdom. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.